Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin. I'm Ian. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode, Breaking the Game. Today, we're going to sit down with our guest, Strash, to talk about Spell and Blade. Welcome, Strash. Oh, hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Hacked in the Dark. It's really good to have you on. Hey, I'm happy to be here. I love all Forges and Dark things. I was actually excited to see a uh, Forges and Dark podcast pop up, so I'm, I'm pretty psyched. I think it's hard for me to imagine anyone more of a fan of Forge in the Dark than you, just given how prolific you are in designing Forge in the Dark games and the quality of your work. So yeah, this is on an honor on almost. Uh, you're making me blush here. I can assure <laughs> you I'm a designer just like everyone else. And I don't know, I've seen some some pretty cool hacks out there. So yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I don't think about myself as being too special here. So so we're going to do some groundwork to talk about Spell and Blade, because I believe you haven't really mentioned this new game much out in the world. No, actually, I think the only mentions that I've had is maybe two posts on Twitter. So this is actually the first place where I'm going to talk about it slightly more extensively. So go ahead and uh, ask your questions. Well, first of all, let's talk about you for a second. What's your origin story in terms of Forge in the Dark design? So for a long time, I actually was, it's, it's pretty funny, I, I didn't consider myself a designer for a very long time. I know there's a lot of discussions on the internet about that, but what I was, was a playtester and to some degree, maybe depending on the game, a consultant, uh, which is where my consulting designer nickname comes from, which we'll talk about in a second. The origin story actually is I was looking into indie games and one of the games that I got pretty heavily involved in was Dungeon World at the time. This was like years ago and I was part of the beta there. And I don't know if you folks are familiar, but Sage Latora is actually part of John Harper's home group, or at least was for a very long time. And so when John Harper sat down to actually do the design for Blades in the Dark, my name cropped up and I was on the short list of people that were in the closed beta. And so I just really been into this game pretty hard. I was very heavily into PBTA designs and I transferred into Fortune Dark, you know, because of the design progression there. I posted a lot of information and stuff. Like I kept posting playtests, pictures, all that kind of thing, answering questions and so on. And so, yeah, I was I was actually a big part of the Blaze in the Dark core playtesting loop in the early days and all the way through the Kickstarter when, you know, obviously there was a lot more people at that point. So yeah, that's sort of how I got involved with Blades in the Dark. It was through playtesting. And when when John actually said, hey, uh, in this case, I'm talking about Harper, obviously. When John said, hey, I'm, I'm doing a Kickstarter, does anybody want to do a hack? Well, I had already made some notes. And here's a funny truth. Sometimes you think to yourself, oh, I'll just make seven playbooks and that won't take too long and it'll be easy. <laughs> and I said, yeah, let me let me sign on for this. I have a couple of ideas. I wouldn't mind doing like a dark military fantasy and like a sci-fi one. And then I figured out how to do like a, a large scale space epic. So like that got added much later on. Yeah, I, I decided that I would write some very easy reskins and then that turned into full games and that's how I ended up in the design loop. Yeah, and for those not in the know, I believe you're referring to Scum and Villainy and Band of Blades, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Awesome. Both great games. Thank you. It sounds like Community played a pretty strong role in your design process. Had you designed anything before getting into Fortune of Dark? I think that if you ask me what my first designs were, I don't think that I was confident enough to design until uh, this is actually a happy story is uh, Jay Walt ran these. They're called mixtapes, indie mixtapes. And it's a bunch of very small games. The bar was set at two pages. So you were trying to design for two pages. Some people went over. I think everyone at least made two pages, but they were conceptual collections of small games that were used to help indie authors in need. So they would help with things like medical expenses and whatnot. And I actually contributed to some of those because the bar was low and Jay Walt also organized, that's Jonathan Walton, also organized some people to help with layout and things like that. I think one of the biggest hurdles that early designers have is less about the design process and more about turning your game into a product. 
And I think that the combination of a very low bar, two pages, and also a provided theme so you don't have blank page syndrome and also some help with layout was enough to get me past the hurdle and start putting out some stuff. The bitter story comes from a different game that <laughs> looks like it'll never get published for reasons, TM. I was working on a really cool game about giant robots fighting kaiju called Atlas Reckoning. Used some innovative playing card system. It was pretty fun. I still have the notes for it. But yeah, it started out, I was working with a fellow from Italy. Uh, that wasn't working out for a variety of reasons. And that's actually when I started working on design with John LaBeouf Little, who became the other half of Off Guard Games, whose name you will see on all of the games. A lot of people say like, oh, hey, Scum and Villainy is Strash's game. That's not true. John is an equal part partner. Definitely a huge part of the design process. Absolutely has massive contributions. Wrote maybe 75 to 80% of the text easily. I might be underselling it. It's definitely our game. It's definitely not my game. I just happen to be the more like vocal and visible part of the design duo on the internet. So a lot of people kind of associate it with just me. But yeah, John is definitely a huge part of that. I've seen people talking about it a lot in the Discord, the idea of working collaboratively for a hack, but you don't see it too often. How's that process work for you? And I think it's incredibly important. We can see this in regular role-playing games. There is this illusion of the lone designer who like sits up till odd hours and you do everything yourself. But that's, in my opinion, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this, but it's, it's BS. I think that even the designers that are known as single names, if you look at their books, particularly in some of the intros and things like that, you'll find that most of them have, they grant like credit to other people. It's just that those names don't get heard as often. Nobody finishes a game without playtesting it. And many of those playtesters will frequently give feedback that'll be critical. Of course, I recognize that the person that's staying up late nights doing, you know, the layout and the writing is probably definitely doing the lion's share of the work. But at the same time, people always contribute to games, even if it's in invisible ways. And I think that collaboration between two people is like the Tsugi principle in play, which for those that do not know it off the top of their head, it is a statement that says that you should not have the same person provide both the obstacle and the solution to the obstacle because it's unsatisfying in play. And I think that having somebody who's equally excited about a game keeps you motivated so that you don't lose steam. I think that having a second person to bounce ideas off of, particularly when you're stuck, will sometimes provide inspiration. It definitely doesn't hurt to have somebody who can carry the load when your life explodes and or you do not have time to work on a specific thing. And I think that finally, it's just healthy to have multiple points of view because people can check you, people can discuss stuff. You know, it, it's, in my opinion, it's a lot harder to try pushing a game through solo, only relying on playtest groups and whatnot than having a design partner who's equally invested. And to some extent, I mean, I say this very honestly, they keep you accountable, right? So if you say like, hey, I'm going to have something next week, and then you have a meeting scheduled next, next week, it definitely helps to motivate you to get your stuff done when you know that there's going to be somebody at your house tapping their leg and looking at their watch and being like, oh, so where's the thing you promised? I really appreciate that perspective. And this podcast is a product of the Official Blades Discord channel, where a lot of hackers of Blades in the Dark have congregated. And even if folks are designing their game solo, if they're the sole writer on the game, certainly a lot of discussion has gone into the development of each of our games developed on the Discord channel. I know that that's true for myself and Mothlight, as well as all of my other Forge in the Dark designs. For Spell and Blade, is that also a collaborative work between you and John? It will be. So this one started a little bit differently. It started as a joke in February. It was an accidental game that turned into a game game. Frequently, I'll just make a character sheet and some basic rules and we'll play a game with my home group. And one of the things that happened is earlier this year, Netflix released The Witcher and... Everybody in my home group watched it and they were like, oh, uh, we haven't played a lot of like straight fantasy games. So like maybe you can just can, can you put something together. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll put something together. And over the course of like two to three weeks, I came up with the character sheet and some very basic mechanics and we play tested it. And then I ran it at a small local convention, like a house con. And then I've been working on it since. So for the most part, I kind of worked on it solo for almost like two, three months because it wasn't expected to be a project that would continue. Like we weren't looking to make a game that was going to, we were going to pursue consistently until it became about the size of a book. And one of my best friends and one of my regular 
playtesters is a fellow by the name of Dylan Boats. And at one point he says, Trash, you cannot call this just a joke when it's over 50 pages long. <laughs> and I went, oh, oh, you're right. And so John's definitely involved now. As a matter of fact, he's writing quest mechanics and iconics and we're definitely putting it on our docket so we're talking about it every week we have weekly design meetups where we set homework for each other and then bring back some stuff that we've tried so definitely it's collaborative now it wasn't for a bit for a bit i was carrying it solo mostly because sometimes you don't know that a game's going to become a thing sometimes you don't know how much energy you're going to invest in something you you make something like as a joke and then it turns out to be a bit more I was the sole designer on it for a bit, but it's definitely, at this point, as a matter of fact, considering how much work Dylan's done, this may be a trio, so we'll see. <laughs> and Dylan is also a designer of Forge and Dark Games, right? Actually, no. Oh, okay. I'm very much in the camp that a lot of the slightly older indie designers are, which is that how do you figure out who's a designer and who's not? Mm-hmm. I do not know that Dylan would label himself a designer, but I think that that's bogus. He's run campaigns. He's definitely had a lot of input. I've definitely seen him put together one shots with some rules modifications and things like that. I would stand in the yes camp, but I want to respect Dylan's wishes and say officially no, at least until this comes out. Well, the official position of the Hacked in the Dark podcast is that we are all hacks in the dark. So as long as we're designing something, we're a Forge in the Dark designer. Sounds good. I'll buy into that 100%. All right. We've gotten a little bit into your game, but I think we haven't gone over the pitch, which makes sense because this is a game that's just in development. But tell us, what is the pitch for your game, Spell and Blade? So you have to understand a couple of things. One, uh, this is a very, very, very early game, which means that I would not even consider it fully alpha complete. It's definitely working through that right now. I'm, I'm definitely doing rapid fire revisions and things like that. So the pitch is actually a little bit boring because we haven't sat down to go through a lot of the like, I don't know what to call it, marketing details, I guess. The easiest way to put it is it is a fortune dark fantasy adventure game. Obviously, that calls to mind things like D&D, but what I really want to talk about is I kind of refer to it as grounded fantasy, because one of the things that you always have to ask yourself is if there are a thousand games on the market like X, what is it that your game does specifically or differently? Like, where's the hook? What's the thing that you bring to the table that others may not? And to me, I'm a big fan of Euro fantasy, which is a little bit different because If you look at most fantasy novels, they have this Bildungsroman kind of flow where if there is something important happening in the world, the players will get involved with it. They'll probably be the only people that can make the solution. They'll have this adventure. And then at the end of the day, they'll they'll solve the problem, right? Like that's standard flow for a Cambalian myth, which is what a lot of stuff comes through. But if you take a look at RPGs, Originally, they may have started in literature, but I feel like they've become kind of like an Ouroboros where the genre is defined by the thing itself. So dungeon fantasy creates more dungeon fantasy that is defined by the things that came right before it. So I think that this harkens back to slightly older, more literary roots. I was interested in making the kind of game that would reflect some older stories, right? Like if you read the first Conan book, Conan is aged and has had dozens of adventures and is now on his last legs trying to rekindle one last heroic act, right? Like that's sort of the plot of, I forget the the name of the first story off the top of my head, but I think that it's not sword and sorcery in the sense that it's like sword and sandal, but it is kind of sword and sorcery in the fact that the players are these wild cards in the middle of a world that's larger than them and there are larger effects at work and it's sort of set in a world where you can both have a knight and a peasant next to each other, and that's okay because it handles that kind of story just fine, as Blades want to do, right? And last but not least, one of the other things that I focus on is sort of longer-term play. We'll see a lot of the characters will age over time, they'll change, they'll grow. And so this is not just a function of like level and stats. There's actually a phase that we can talk about called time passes, where the world changes and the characters you know, progress and change. And we actually pick them up in a different chapter of their lives and see what is the next time that they like swear an oath to each other and go off and do, do some adventures and whatnot. I dig that. I'm intrigued by Euro comics myself as just a fan of comics in general, how they differ from American comics, as well as like the sword and sorcery tropes, which you see a lot of in those comics. And that sounds really intriguing to me. 
Yeah, that sounds really cool. One thing that often comes up in discussion of fantasy hacks on the Discord is how to handle magic. Have you uh, taken a look at how the spell part of the game is going to come into play? Yeah, actually. The way it's it's handled is... That's a big topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are two popular ways in games to handle this. There is either the you have kind of some adjectives and then as long as you use them, you can kind of put together whatever vaguely makes sense. This is actually much more set. It doesn't use spells or spell slots, but different types of magic have different sets of rules. So, for example, the version of priests or clerics in here are called chosen. And one of the things that distinguishes chosen is that they can make bargains with gods. So the gods are written up as a set of ethos, which is what they tell you how like you should live your life and your life practices. And then they've got wants. And so you can ask a god if you're a chosen, you have a, you have a mark of that god on your body. And through it, you're connected to god and they interfere in your life constantly because they're jerks. But... You can actually ask the god to perform a miracle, and when they do, there's a cost that's based on scale, and if you're familiar with that from, from some of the Blades games, the magnitude determines the cost of the miracle, and then you have to pay it off. It's debt, right? Like, you go into debt to the god, and then by doing the things that the god wants, you can actually pay it off. So, to provide an example, if you're chosen by Boar, who is one of the Varani gods, he's a big bear god, he can provide, like, strength. So, for example, you could use your strength to save your group. Like, you know, a door fell and you want to lift up this giant stone door with inhuman strength that might cost you like three or four debt. And so like everyone's safe, no problem. You perform this like minor miracle and then you have to do things Boar wants. So one of the things that Boar wants is he wants you to protect the weak. So like he also likes children for some reason. So if you <laughs> go out and, you know, you help some impoverished people or like you, you work at an orphanage or something, that'll actually pay off the debt. And so there's this like bargaining system if you're a chosen. But that's drastically different from like if you're a wise one, you know, they have effectively gear as spell slots. They have these foci and there's these like different types of magic that they can bind to it. And then there are wizards who are completely different. There's this process called wizard apotheosis that you go through, which is to say that in order to be able to wield the fundamental forces of magic in this universe, you have to actually change yourself. You have to do something incredibly dangerous and survive. You actually roll. <laughs> so you might die if you're a wizard. It's okay. It happens. When you undergo wizard apotheosis, for example, if you want to become a pyroclast, you have to shove a kernel of true fire into your body and survive that process. And then when you do, you can wield the fires of creation, right? So, like, you fundamentally change your nature as a person. You're no longer fully human, right? So, like, if you want to become a necromancer, you have to replace one of the bones in your body with a bone of a necromancer king and then bury yourself and find your way back from the Deathlands. And so, like, you know, no big deal, right? Like, just become a wizard, do wizard <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, the magic stuff is actually defined separately. What happens is when you buy a trait, like when you buy Wizard Apotheosis and you become a wizard then you gain a set of books that define how your wizard group works. And nobody else needs to know those rules. You just kind of get your own little kit and a couple extra pages that you have to read through and make some picks on and stuff like that. So, so yeah, it, it depends on the type of magic that you're doing, right? Like, not all magic is the same. So the rules for magic are slightly different. Each type of wizard functions a little bit differently. Or I guess I should say magic user. So are you willing to call them magical mini games right here on this podcast right now? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They're subsystems, right? So so <laughs> magical mini games is totally the case. That's how it works. Pick the one you like. Do you like, you know, risk management, resource management, gear management? What's your poison? So today you might notice our episode title is Breaking the Game. And quite literally, we're talking about breaking Blades in the Dark and turning it into a new game of sorts. Still Forge in the Dark, of course. But changing the systems, going beyond mere setting changes and the shifting of gears and levers and what have you to make a new game, which I believe, Strush, that you've already done with Band of Blades and somewhat in Scum and Villainy. You can be the judge of that. But it sounds to me like Spell and Blade is looking to do something similar and really change up the systems. What do you feel it changes the most? So one of the things that I do for Spell and Blade is I move pushes. Core Blades in the Dark, one of the core mechanics that I think sort of identifies it as its own thing is the stress mechanics, right? So you've got resistances and pushes and things like that. And Spell and Blade is called Vigor because when I called it stress, everybody kept trying to use stress to do stuff that stress normally does in Blades. And so uh, it's called Vigor. You have heroic Vigor. But I took pushes away from the Vigor pool and I put them on traits. So 
You see this a lot in core blades. One of the things that you'll see sometimes is if you're a cutter, for example, when you push yourself, you might be able to fight as a small gang, right? Like that's the thing that's in there. And so what I did was instead of allowing you to push yourself with stress, which then implements that, I actually moved it to the trait. So your traits allow pushes and you increase, you basically train up your traits. And one of the things that that does is it allows you to do like a little bit more mixing and matching, right? So you can put different traits together in different configurations. But most importantly for me, what it does is it forces you to diversify your pool of actions. So one of the things that you see frequently in blades is if someone's a cutter, they'll take as much skirmish as they can. And then they'll try to solve problems by just like rolling the maximum pool and then pushing themselves and getting assists. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that frequently, if what you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So you'll see people constantly rolling the same set of skills because that's their specialization. That's what they're good at. And they'll try to like sort of solve problems oftentimes with the same die pools. Like it becomes, I wouldn't call it repetitive, but it it definitely becomes a trope in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm very excited about is by shifting this to traits, and in particular by not having traits be consistently linked to the same things, the die pool is completely different in a spell and blade. So you get a die for if you have a skill, you get a die if you have a piece of gear that applies to the situation, you get a die if there's some sort of magical enhancement on you, you get a what's called a power die, which is either from a trait push or from a group assist. And so your die pool is assembled a little bit differently. People definitely spend a lot more time thinking about the environment, what gear they have, things like that. And it means that your minimum die pool is frequently not gonna be zero. But it also means that your maximum die pool is never going to be like absurdly large because it's capped by these die subtypes. But one of the most important things is that because the die pool is pretty low, you definitely are wanting to get as many dice as possible. So you'll frequently see people shift through a series of actions. So let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, my folks were traveling through a dark forest. They were looking for a, a wise one that was rumored to have lived for a couple hundred years and they needed some information from a long time ago. And they got attacked by giant spiders. Now... In a standard situation, you know, the cutter would probably just like cut through the spiders, and, like handle most of the fighting or like, you know, make a little clock and just like fight through them or whatever. But instead, the group started doing a sequence of actions that look a lot more in my head like a movie because they could not repeat the same action repeatedly and get a good die pool. So, for example, they attempted to scare the spiders by like waving a torch in their faces. And then they started to scramble, but they got a Ford five. So then I introduced a, a very large kind of like matriarch spider. I don't know, like a, like a giant mama spider was coming down. And then somebody used whisper, which is the talk to animals trait to like try and convince their hawk to try and cut the string that this thing was coming down on. And then they rolled a six. And so like they were going through sequences of roles that were still progressing the story forward, but they weren't just standing still and like skirmishing straight into like a like a clock kind of thing, right? So you'll see a lot more variety and flex and sort of like how people try to approach problems based on what traits they have open until they can like refresh their pushes and whatnot. That's pretty exciting. I've seen a number of people try out trait hacks of the action system. And I'm always really intrigued by them. It definitely changes up the balance of resources of XP and how that works and whatnot. What kind of cascading effects has changed changing that system done to the rest of the game? Well, I mean, (laughs) now you can start getting a little bit of a taste of how wizards are put together with their own sets of rituals and, and traits and whatnot. It also means that you don't have playbooks, so there are no preset sets of traits in the sense that there's no sheet where you get your seven and then you're done and then you can try to veteran a few more. So there's a lot more flex in sort of like how characters advance and build, which also means that when time passes, you can change careers and swap out your character a little bit more easily. So yeah, that's that's definitely a, a, a big change that's come from this. When you start thinking about how you're going to create a new game with, with all new systems, and you're looking back at Blades in the Dark, what do you see as the pillars of Blades? And what are the hurdles of changing those pillars? I, I just want to say, anybody that's listening, I don't want you to take my word as some sort of canon law, but mm-hmm. this is just an opinion. Take it with a grain of salt, please. I think that if I had to break down Blades in the Dark to sort of the core of it, I think that we're going to look at position and effect. And I think you can play with that a little bit. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think you should play with that a little bit. And I'll talk about that in a second. But position and effect and 
I will refer to it as stress, but what I actually mean is a combination of pushes, assists, and most importantly, resistances. The ability to resist fictional stuff is, in my opinion, one of the really kind of core tenets of Blades. Like, if you take that out, it stops feeling like Blades to me. Definitely has nothing to do with legally what's the definition or or some sort of opinion like that, but we've tried playing with a lot of Blades factors. And once we remove those factors, it stops feeling like Blades. It, it starts slipping into something else. Like you'll, you'll definitely still have a game. It might even be a functional game. It could even be a fun game, but it doesn't feel like a Blades game. How much do you folks know about how Blades in the Dark started? Not much, personally. Okay. There was a confluence of two major factors that occurred, one of which is that Harper was running for his home game. They had run a World of Dungeons game where they broke the world, and then they had a subsequent it was a PBTA-based game called Ghost Lines. I'm a fan. It's about fighting ghosts on trains. And they realized that they wanted to have a much larger, more faction-based kind of involved with more downtimes and details kind of stuff for that. And at the same time, there was a discussion at the time it was G+. Uh, rest in peace. <laughs> on G+, there was a discussion about how in Apocalypse World, PBTA moves have this standardized structure where you do not actually affect the fiction too much going in and going out. And Harper, like myself, was just like, hey, that's not true. And then in order to showcase how moves of fiction can interact, he actually wrote a basic coin flipping game where he was showing how the outcomes can be drastically different based on what the position is coming in and what the position is coming out. And then that became... When I saw the original version of Blaze in the Dark, which was ages ago, there was this, it was it was just two moves. I think he called it like aggressive and defensive stance. And, and that was based on that. But eventually that became position and effect. You can see that Harper there heard about a technical challenge, like how do you design a game to do this? And then picked it up, merged it with a campaign that he was working on at home. And then that slowly developed into the game that we see today. And similarly, sometimes I take a challenge and I hear somebody say something and I'm like, how would I do that? And then I try to make a game that either proves or disproves that. So I know that in Scum and Villainy, if you listen to the old Harper interviews about Blades in the Dark, one of the things that he mentions, he's like, oh, well, the crew and specifically claims and reputation are kind of a core mechanic. And you'll notice that Scum and Villainy has neither because I was like, <laughs> I don't know about that. Let's see if we can make a game without that. And it turns out we can. And then the next year at Metatopia, somebody told me that Blades in the Dark can only be rescanned. It can't be hacked because it is so tied to the core gameplay loop of job plus downtime. I was like, um, really? And then I made Band of Blades. So it's one of those things where I, I frequently will look at what someone is saying. It's not doable. But instead of like arguing on the internet, which I frequently find pretty pointless, I'll just make a thing and then I'll, I'll show people how I did that thing and then I'll hand it to them and then hopefully hackers will take it and run with it and make cool new stuff that I couldn't have possibly anticipated. So that's part of it. The other half of it is a lot of my personal design process is that I visualize a moment of play. And then I work backwards and find which systems match the vision of that moment of play. So I know that my design partner, John LaBeouf Little, frequently he thinks about the whys of games and the larger themes, and he definitely designs from a much more broader concept palette back down. But I know that I myself, I'm a very visual person. This is partially why I'm so into Blaze in the Dark. I feel it's very movie, action movie slash visually oriented kind of style of design. And so what I do is I think of a cool moment in a campaign and then I make a game that's going to generate that moment. And so a lot of my design process is holding up pieces of Blades in the Dark and saying, does this fit? How does this fit? What does the shape of this generate in play? Does this match the vision that I am trying to create? So I made a, a tiny hack called Into the Dark. It's out. It's on drive through or whatnot. And it has no downtimes because that's assumed to take place between games and it's got no crew sheet. And I don't think that necessarily destroys its functionality as like a fortunate art game. I think that those are things that you can play with. You can keep them, you can take them away. But I think that you have to think about what does a crew sheet do? Well, what a crew sheet does is it limits the scope of, we will tell stories about anything to know we will tell stories that are about thieves and here are the limits of that. Here are some of the powers that tell you how to maybe tell stories about those thieves. And so if you have a different piece of the game that does that, like in Band of Blades, that's been 
shifted out, right? We agree, like, straight from the bat, oh, this is dark military fantasy, make some commanders, that'll help with the military part. But then when we talk about, like, the dark part of dark fantasy, you've got to pick the thematic elements of the campaign by choosing your broken. And then you've got to pick the themes that the Legion is fighting for by choosing your chosen. And so... We have taken the crew sheet and we've actually broken it up and we've asked some of those questions in different ways. So I think that as long as your game can either anticipate some of those questions or you figure out different ways of doing it, whether it's breaking it up and putting it on sheets or simply writing it up as part of the buy-in before you actually even get into the game, that can help. And I think that it's important just to look at, is this enough to generate that style of effect in play? Is this enough to cause people to act in a specific way so that, you know, you can have a, a, a game that has these elements and whatnot in it? That's sort of where I come from in terms of design and picking out stuff. It sounds to me like you feel designers should be bold and then like test their designs. I mean, absolutely. Design, just the word design. Like if we're, if we're talking about design at all, design is about making choices. And so... I definitely think that you can not make choices and make games that will not necessarily cater to a specific experience. You will have people who will not know what they're going to get into at the table. Uh, Games that are not tested will frequently not generate the same type of play experience. You can't reliably tell people the kind of stuff that they're buying into, which I think is a big part of playing games. And I think that you should make some choices and then you should test and see if those theories that you had, like, does my design generate this sort of play? Does my design cause people to act this way at the table? And then that's what playtesting is all about. Because I'm also of the school of designer that believes that a game is only alive when it's at a table, right? Like, it's not in the text. The text only tells you how to put it on a table. That's an important component of it. So yeah, make, make bold decisions, figure out how the mechanics encourage those decisions, and then test the test the test there, right? Like, play, play the game. Yeah. Speaking of testing, what decisions have you made for a design that have not worked out? And, and how do you handle that? This is going to sound like a humble brag, but it's actually just practice. These days, we frequently talk through a lot of what ifs and corner cases. That's actually one of my strengths as a designer is I can postulate how stuff is going to land at a table pretty accurately. But a lot of that comes from just having done it a hundred times, right? So if you make one game, uh, some of these answers are not obvious. By the time you make your hundredth game, you're not wasting time going down dead ends because you already know what's going to be a dead end a lot of the time. But it still happens. So one of the things that happened is, so right literally today, I changed the thing in Spell and Blade. I had a corruption mechanic where you could accumulate corruption. And it wasn't modeling what I wanted correctly. Like it wasn't acting in play the way that I was expecting. It wasn't interacting with some of the fiction, right? And so now the way that it works is, so there's a a part of the game, they're called oaths. Oaths are a big deal. You swear an oath and oaths also have pushes on them based on what the oath is, but you can get cursed and curses eat up oath slots. And so one of the things that happens is when you enter an area that's very strong in magic, the GM will tell you what kind of curse you can fall under. And then that becomes a clock on your sheet. And as you like move through this area, the clock fills until eventually you might become cursed. And then that's like a new way that I'm, I'm going to test out to see how this like secondary effect works. Because just having corruption as a number that was going up and would cause the thing, which is how it works in, in Band of Blades, that's where I took it from, wasn't working right, right? Like the Band of Blades corruption mechanic worked fine for that system because there was only one source of corruption, which is the undead and like strange magic and whatnot. And here I have very clearly defined magical effects and I have this secondary oath structure, which is tied to one of them, which is deep magic. And and yeah, it's, it's, it's different. And so I, I tried using the old mechanic and it wasn't working. And so I knew that I had to change it. And I went through like one or two ideas in my head, but I'm pretty sure this one is, is, going to work the way that I'm expecting it to. So we're going to play test it. Like I have, I have a game tomorrow. We're going to see how it works. And then if it doesn't, I'll pitch that out and try something else. There's definitely that case where a system impacts another system and then maybe you have to make rewrites to that system. And at least in my designs, I, I have a big problem where I'll just keep doing that and going in circles and this system impacts this system. How do you know when to really lock stuff down and say, all right, this is working good enough. And even though I want to tweak more, when should you stop? That's a tough question. This is where having a design partner is oftentimes useful because you can check each other. Like if you're if you're having that feeling and that the other person is saying, hey, it seems to be working okay. Maybe let this one go, right? Like 
if you have respect and trust with your design partner, that's the kind of thing that you maybe you let go. And then if it's still bothering you like a month or two down the road, you're like, you know, maybe we should revisit this. I, I really don't like this. I have to I have to admit this. This is very true. John is very long suffering. John LL. <laughs> <laughs> so occasionally I will just be like, you know, this is really bugging me. And John will be like, fine, let's look at it again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I think that having a design partner definitely helps. And I think that maybe just like learning to give it time is sometimes also important. I think you just try it and, and I don't know, this is just one of those things you have to learn over time. Like it's something that you try and you see how it's working. And in particular, if you do blind plan tests where you pass it off to a group and you tell them, hey, can you in particular focus on this part to give you some feedback? And if you get like three or four groups that are like, seems fine, I don't know why you're upset with it. You're still a designer. You're still going to know best for your game. You're still going to feel it in your gut if it's not working. Yeah, it's not it's not obvious. It's not easy. I don't I don't have the secret magic sauce here that'll <laughs> give you the answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really ag- agree and resonate with the idea that you just have to feel it out often and that you kind of know when it's good enough or when it's right. And your players will, too. But I'm wondering Whenever you're writing a Forge in the Dark game, how do you ride the line between creating something that feel, still feels familiar, that still feels like Blades? Because I know sometimes when people can make changes, when they can make rewrites or reword a mechanic, that can trip people up who are familiar with Blades. How do you ride that line between changing something and keeping it the same? It's a combination of two things. One is uh, obviously experience. I joke, but it's actually very true. I played 47 different versions of Blades between the first version I saw and the version that was published. So learning what's there, seeing the changes, understanding how those changes impact play between versions is watching Harper go through that design process and kind of like learning it. And so it's a question of experience. I've done that a lot. And I've done it when I was testing for someone else where I didn't have to gauge if it was a good decision or not. I could just give feedback, you know, and critical like analysis. You then do it in your own games, right? Like you definitely try it a couple of times yourself. I think that what you really need to do is look at each component and understand its purpose. And at that point, it goes back to the thing that I said earlier, which is you got to hold it up to what your ultimate vision is and see how it clicks into place. And if it does or it doesn't, like where is a problem? So let me, let me talk about Scum and Villainy for a quick second. Mm-hmm. One of the most iconic parts of Blaze, like the part that I would say you should probably very carefully modify if you modify it at all is the position and effects right and so one of the things that we realized is before we start working on scum and villainy i sat down i watched like a bunch of shows and movies and all of the like iconic space opera stuff and one of the things that i was looking at was what is the position and effect in any given scene and sort of what actions are they doing that was like one of the ways that i sort of prepped for writing scum and villainy and one of the things that i realized is that the majority of space opera takes place at the level of risking But if you take a look at Blades, mechanically you're incentivized to either try for control, because then you're in control position, you're dominant, right? Or you can try for desperate, because that gives you XP. And risky is sort of this, like, unhappy middle, where you neither get XP nor are you in a good position. So one of the things that we did was we put the generation of gambits on risky and sort of added this ability to make your crew be better and sort of collaborate with each other a little bit better if you're taking more risky actions than not. And that sort of helped people gravitate towards risky as this comfortable middle where controlled was fine, but you couldn't generate gambits uncontrolled and desperate was fine. And you get XP on desperate, but you couldn't generate gambits on desperate. So a lot of times people would be rewarded for actually taking risky actions, which generated more risky play. Whereas in blades, people tend to like gravitate from one extreme to the another, right? Like they'll, they'll frequently go desperate just because they can and like roll everything on that six and hope for it. That's an example of like, we understood how the chart was set up, we understood what was incentivized, and we understood that that middle needed just a little bit more incentive to change the style of like how people were playing. And so we put this thing in the middle, and then we saw people respond to it and act for it more. And that was that was how it worked. So it's tough to, to give you an answer. I think that if you want, we can do a different episode where we break down like the 10 Blades components and what is their purpose and <laughs> when is a good place to put them and when is a bad place to put them. But I think that definitely is just about understanding the why. Why is this here? What does it incentivize? How does that model the game that I have? And I think that a lot of people are 
like particularly reskinners. There's nothing wrong with reskins, by the way. I think that they're redesigns that saying anything's bad here. But I've seen a lot of Blaze hacks that are basically like folks scared to remove a component because they're not sure how that's going to affect gameplay. And I think that maybe like some discussion about each of the pieces and like, hey, where would you use it? Where would you not use it? I, I think it's healthy for people to disagree with me too. Like, I, I don't know that I have the ultimate answer for this. I can just tell you the answers that I came up with. So yeah, I think that it's it's all about just looking at what it does in the game and then trying to figure out if either A, you have something that already does that or B, do you even need that? That's my suggestion. It's just Put the piece up to your game and try to see if it fits. And if it doesn't, don't be scared to throw it away. You know, if you're like, hey, I I don't really think my game needs coin because it's about feelings and maybe it doesn't need a currency economy. Well, then just take coin out, you know, and see what happens. Oh, are you short on, you know, downtime actions? Hmm, well, maybe you need a different mechanic that handles that part of the problem, right? Maybe you don't need to just slap coin back in. You just need a different way to solve for that. So, yeah, that's my suggestion is try stuff out, see what starts breaking, where does it feel tense or bad, and then try to figure out what a solution is that fits your game and your kind of genre. Thank you. Well, first of all, actually, I would, I would really like to thank you for volunteering to run our masterclass podcasts in Forge in the Dark Design. You know, I really appreciate you just volunteering right there here on the spot for that. I'm 100% serious. I know that podcasts have these like limited <laughs> timeframes, but I really love this community. This community's done a uh-huh. lot for me. So if you folks want to have an episode about that, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like that's, I know you're joking, but I'm not joking. I will be here. <laughs> awesome. We would love to have you back and get you involved in, in the production of the podcast. Maybe we'll have to talk about that. On the topic though, Ian, maybe you've shared this experience where you've seen folks talking about removing position and effect. And I don't know about you, but I've always bit my tongue a little bit, not because I don't think it can be done or that it's not a useful thing potentially for for a game, but it just seems like such a huge hurdle to get over. Right. Yeah. And I know I've done a lot of hacking with position and effect in Deathwish. It's kind of built around that. Uh, as we discussed in the last episode. So I've kind of tried to hold back, if only because I'm worried I might be biased by that, in that so much of my experience with the system is going hard into position and effect. But I feel like the other people who want to try going the other way, they can definitely experiment with it and see where it goes. And a lot of the discussion on the Discord has been about not so much removing position and effect, but removing the discussion and mechanics around position and effect, because they they prefer to just play it out at the table. Uh, have you folks seen Into the Dark? I don't think so. I've read through it once. Yeah. So one of the things that I do in Into the Dark is I try to actually stripping down blades so hard so that there's like nothing left at the bottom. But one of the things that I do is I actually remove the discussion of position and effect because so what does position and effect actually do is it separates consequences and difficulty and it also integrates fiction and mechanics, right? So like to me, the thing that makes blades blades, why I keep coming back to this well, why I keep making games around it is because I really like the idea that what is happening in the fiction is going to impact the mechanics and it's going to change the outcomes. But the player sets the difficulty. The player says, I want to use action A, and the GM sets the consequences. They say, this is desperate, so you'll probably take level three harm if you fail, right? Like those two things are separate. Whereas in most games, the GM sets the difficulty by saying, hey, you know, this is a DC 15 role. Or they might say like, oh, well, it sounds like you're using this move, but it sounds like you're doing it with hard or whatever. Or, or in that case, I guess the designer setting the difficulty. But I think that position and effect, like if you remove the integration of fiction and mechanics, you are playing in a different pool of water. Like you are, you are outside the bound of blades. That's kind of like the core beating heart of it, right? And I think you can do it. So one of the things that I did in that case was I removed that discussion because sometimes it can hiccup the fiction. I know that there are definitely tables that love that discussion. They want to say like, let's just establish what the stakes are. Okay, if you reach for the dice, you're agreeing to the fact that you might die. You understand that, right? Okay, roll. And so like that can be fun. It can be fun to be very explicit about what the costs and the consequences are. But I also understand some tables just want to flow into it or not. And so what happened was I integrated that kind of stuff into the outcomes and sometimes like it's it's very subtle. So like if you only have six hit points and something does 
d6 damage, then, you know, you're probably taking a level three harm there, maybe even level four harm. And so you don't need to talk about that. That's just going to happen as a nature of the role. So you can actually set, you know, controlled or non-controlled depending on how the fiction like influences the mechanics. So I think that there are ways to do it. Um, as a matter of fact, I believe in Spell and Blade, what I say is, by default, everything is risky. Don't discuss it, just roll risky. If you need to, you should list the things that you have that are helping the situation or things that you have that are hurting the situation. And if you have more things that are helping, you're controlled. If you have more things that are hurting, it's desperate. And I think that there's a couple of other hacks that I've seen that do something similar. The one that I want to call attention to is Blaze Against Darkness. And I think that you can do stuff like that. But I think that like removing position effect entirely, you're, you're in a different field, in my opinion. It's, it gets a little it gets a little tricky at that point. For me, I feel like it and resistance, position effect and resistance embody this philosophy of Forge in the Dark design of lowercase c consent. That's really important to me. And so that's why I've always kind of shied away from really messing with those systems too much. I don't know if you feel the same way, either of you. I feel like it's got a lot to do with how important the mechanical consequences and how irrevocable the consequences are. Like if you're playing in a very pulpy system where a resist means completely ignore all of the consequences, then maybe it's it's not as big of a deal. Like uh, maybe the GM softballs the uh, consequence or maybe the consequences your character dies. Oh, well, either way, if you don't like it, just roll resist. While in a system that's doing a lot of the harder resists, where resist only brings it down a level, and then the consequence might impact your dice or effect for the rest of the session or even multiple sessions, you're going to care a lot more and you're going to want to know exactly how this action is going to impact you and what you can do to change that. Yeah, that's a pretty solid take, I think. I, I don't know that I've ever used the words resistance equals consent, but that's a, that's an, an interesting thing to think about is like table culture and consent is definitely something that all designers should probably think about in their designs. Yeah. Whenever I say consent in this regard, you know, it's more in terms of making sure everyone's on the same page, you know, which position and effect pretty explicitly is about that, right? So is resistance, in my opinion. And so are so many of these systems in Blades in the Dark kind of about getting players and GMs on the same page. One of the things I really like about Band of Blades, which is a very, you know, relatively deadly system compared to Blades in the Dark, which is, uh, in my opinion, yeah. not very deadly at all with your average group, is that extends to a lot of the GM functions being distributed amongst the players. And you really change up how the game feels in that way, but also you give everyone a say in how dangerous the game is and in how strongly they are invested in the different characters that you're playing with, etc. Yeah, especially horror, like the genre horror is playing with, with understanding that it is a genre that definitely tiptoes around and definitely needs to have a discussion about consent is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And by that, what I'm actually talking about partially is agency, right? If the GM can just say like, no, I take your character away, like that's, there is some discussion about consent over agency there. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for noticing that. That was very important to us. You can see that we start talking about that. I think it's on page two or three. So like, <laughs> <laughs> we definitely thought about that very carefully while we were designing. So it's, it's kind of a big deal for us. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about as far as Spell and Blade? Anything that we haven't gone over that you're just like itching to tell people about? I got to talk about time passes. So in Standard Blades, right, you've got the job. And one of the things that I want to talk about is I have these actual three core gameplay loops. For me, obviously, since this is fantasy, the job is an adventure, right? And adventures can be different things. You could go hunting a great beast. You could investigate corruption in the land, you know, whatnot. And then while you're doing that, there's this uh, sub gameplay loop where there is this mechanic called camping. So you can like camp for 15 minutes when you stop to catch a breath, or you could camp overnight where you actually like build a little fire and you, you know, get comfy and have like six hours of rest and all, all that stuff. I think that camping is how you refresh your pushes. And one of the things that I'm really proud about in camping is that it actually rewards you. You get bonus dice, which means that you'll likely get better push refresh if you reveal a fact about your characters. So we get a lot of campfire scenes where people like talk about their, you know, homeland or why they're on an adventure and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. 
And then when an adventure concludes, uh, you have a town phase, which will be familiar to Blaze players. It feels a little bit like downtimes, right? You've got a mixture of free play and certain town actions that you can take and different careers have different career specific town actions or they have rules that affect town actions. Like if you're an outlaw, you might carouse with your band of, of merry folk which is not something that necessarily everyone can do, right? Like, that's not the sort of thing a wizard would do. A wizard can study. So there's town actions, and okay, we understand that. And that's, that's like downtimes. And then there's time passes, which is this completely new thing. And what time passes does is it resets the world to an extent. So one of the things is that if you want to think about each adventure as a chapter in a book, then time passes is like the end of a book and the start of a new one. Multiple years go by, the GM rolls some charts and comes up with like a starting position and difficulties that are happening now. Like how has the world changed, right? Like what's going on around you? What's the larger context of, of the world that you're t- having adventure in? And one of the things that happens is players get to make these picks. And so like they can choose to like become a new career. So like they change their life. Like I had a, a chosen who became a hunter. He believed that his, his God was pushing for things that maybe ultimately would hurt people. And he tried to himself from his god and like living a simple life in the woods and being a hunter so you can change your career you can age which is one of the things that like lets you get stuff and draw some stuff on the map and like change the world in certain ways or you can have certain things happen to you where like you change the fiction of your character uh and you can actually meet important people make certain ties move certain factions around and actually influence how the next like set of stuff is going to be happening so there is this like weird phased play where the group comes together for whatever reason, and they usually have a couple of adventures, they handle certain problems, and then they release each other from their oaths, and they separate, and they they live several years. So it's interesting because we'll sometimes see people in different parts of their lives, right? Like, we'll see people who are bright-eyed 18-year-olds ready for adventure, who are gung-ho and and super into, like, helping out their village or whatever, and then, like, two or three time passes later, someone is, like, married, has started a sword school, and, like, they're dealing with the fact that, you know, they've got problems in their hometown, and it's, like, completely different. Like, we are still seeing the same characters, and they still have a lot of the same drives and personality traits and things like that, but at the same time, we're catching them in these, like, completely different aspects of their lives. And I think that that's that's something that a lot of games don't look at a lot of games definitely sort of like pick up in a time period and and there are gms of course that have you know run a campaign that's just been like i don't know it's 10 years later but it's not necessarily like deeply integrated into the mechanics of the game and here it's like super important because it's one of the ways that you do career changes which are also like incentivized for reasons so there's a bunch that's attached to that and i think is like new and exciting and it sort of also changes the nature of the fantasy and the nature of the like flow. So I think that it's interesting because we actually get to experience sort of this story on, on a bunch of different levels. And I think that that's a cool thing I'm really excited about. I hope, I hope people like it. I like the idea that you could be caught up in this short campaign for a time before time passes, or just a huge amount of time could pass from session to session. And you could really just see how the world has changed and how the characters have changed until you finally get caught up in something that, that grabs your attention again. I want to thank you, Strush, for joining us today and for all your insights into Spill and Blade and hacking in general. I would love to have you on again, either as a guest or a host or what have you. If our listeners want to learn more about your games in particular, where can they go? Two easiest places to go is you can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Strash A. And you can also go visit our website, offguardgames.com. That's pretty much where most of our official published games are going to have links and stuff. We even have some free games you can download there. So check it out. Oh, I stream a Twitch stream on twitch.tv slash actual play. There we go. Oh, and, and definitely, if you are listening to this podcast, you almost universally know that there is a official Blaze in the Dark forum at community.blazeinthedark.com. But if you didn't, you should go there. <laughs> I, I, I visit there pretty frequently and check it out. So, yeah. Thank you very much. We'll have some information on the Discord server if you also want to check that out. We talk a lot on the Hack channel on that server. And you can coordinate with us on various other channels if you'd like to get involved with production of the show. This has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Again, I'm Justin. And I'm Ian. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journeys as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.